Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to a special holiday episode of Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, today we're taking a look at Labour, a year on from what was its worst electoral of defeat since 1935. Since then, we've seen Sir Keir Starmer succeed Jeremy Corbyn as leader, vowing to stamp out the anti-Semitism that took hold within the party. Following through on that commitment has involved some uncomfortable decisions, particularly, I guess, sacking his fellow leadership candidate Rebecca Long-Bailey from the Shadow Cabinet and suspending the whip, of course, from Jeremy Corbyn, uh, which have risked reigniting divisions within the party. Yep, but then we had Keir Starmer's performance throughout the coronavirus pandemic, perhaps instilling a little bit of faith in some closing Labour's polling gap with the Conservatives at one point, opening up a five-point lead. That said, though, there's still a long way to go if Starmer is to take Labour into government at the next election. In the second part of the programme, we're going to talk about all of those challenges ahead. First, though, let's focus on the Corbyn years. Joining us to do that is Gabriel Pogrand. He's the Whitehall correspondent at the Sunday Times and author of Left Out, the inside story of Labour under Corbyn. Uh, Gabriel, good to have you. I've been flicking through your book. You talk about uh, sort of the early days leading up to the 2019 election, the moment the Labour leadership got its first indication it was going to lose that election. And that was months before. That was in August. Talk us through what happened there and just what was understood by the top brass within the party. Well, thanks for having me on. And uh, just to directly address that question. So um, around the time of Labour's party conference last year, um, this is in September, uh, the party had gathered um, for for their kind of annual jamboree um, in Brighton. And there was this uh, kind of meeting of Corbyn's high command I'm in the bowels of the Hilton Metropole. Um, and it was there that they took a look at the polling which the party had been uh, conducting with the assistance of YouGov over the previous months. And uh, what it revealed to John McDonnell, Ian Lavery, um, another, a number of other key pollsters and officials who were in the room, uh, was that Labour's attempt to ride two horses at once, that is, its attempt to reach out to both Brexit voters and Remainers um, had had the opposite effect. It, in fact, resulted in both groups being driven away. I mean, there's this um, lovely aphorism coined by uh, Nye Bevan, the founder of the NHS. He said that um, if you try and uh, stand in the middle of the road, you get run over. And, I mean, this was effectively what was happening to Labour. I mean, these polls taken at that time suggested that the party would lose remain readout such as Vauxhall um, whilst failing to retain many of the 
seats which were in the then so-called red wall, now now the blue wall, if you ask most Conservative MPs. Um, but, I mean, at that point, um, you know, coming towards the end of 2019, it was effectively impossible, um, or, or it appeared impossible to many in the room, for Labour to do anything different. I mean, it was, you know, this, this was three years after uh, the referendum, more than three years after the referendum, during which time Labour's um, step stance of kind of constructive ambiguity um, had, had effectively, um, you know, been, been so impactful that um, many of the parties' base had abandoned them. Yeah, I mean, as you say, it was uh, an extraordinary. A difficult position to pose uh, to the voters. Uh, circumlocution was extraordinary. I remember you know, Jeremy Corbyn being asked about it and, and, and almost feeling that he couldn't quite express the, the position that Labour had taken. It was so obscure, really, to most people, and not least him. And, and, and part of that weird mixing, I think, was clear in the setup with Tom Watson being deputy leader to Jeremy Corbyn, because that always seemed an extremely awkward uh, relationship. But there's some very interesting things I think you've found out about the, his departure, because that was that that had a whiff of, well, some would say Stalinism, at least in the attempt to get rid of him. Um how much did Corbyn have to do with that? So, I mean, Tom Watson was this great thorn in the leadership side and for one reason, and that was that he derived his leg- legitimacy from the same place that Corbyn derived his. Namely, he'd been directed, di- directly elected by the party's membership um, in September 2015. So um, it wasn't like he was an ordinary shadow cabinet member. You can't, you, you can't just sack the deputy leader. Um, especially when hundreds of thousands of people had voted for him. Um, the byproduct of which was that Labour's um, high command, Corbyn's closest staffers, for, for many months were kind of considering how best to get rid of Watson. And they alighted on this um, ridiculous proposal, which was um, to actually just delete his position, to, to literally remove it from Labour's constitution. You know, what better way than to get rid of your deputy leader than to abolish the existence of his office. And this was what they attempted to do at, at the aforementioned party conference in 2019. Um, the, the, the left, by which I mean you know, Corbyn's office, the left-wing trade unions and numerous left-wing members of Labour's National Executive Committee uh, decided to pass or, or propose rather an extraordinary emergency motion to get rid of Tom Watson's position um, at the uh, perennial NEC National Executive Committee meeting, which takes place uh, before the conference. I mean, it is uh, traditionally a legendarily boring administrative event. Many of the party's moderates and Corbyn sceptics didn't turn up because nothing of note ever happened. Um, this time, something of note did happen, which was they proposed this motion. Uh, you asked how much did Corbyn know about it. Um, he knew all about it because two of his closest aides had come to his hotel bedroom um, you know, minutes or a couple of hours before uh, the meeting was due to take place in order to say to him, uh, Jeremy, we've all been considering how to get rid of Tom for months. Um, you, we think, uh, we, we think you agree with what we're about to do, but we just want to absolutely authenticate uh, your, your interest and your, your green light before we go ahead with doing this, because it's going to be dramatic and there are going to be consequences. Uh, by this point, um, it, it was not only Brexit, that Corbyn was increasingly Delphic in relation to. Nobody quite knew what he wanted um, in relation to Tom Watson, and he failed to communicate with clarity, um, according to those who he was speaking to at the time, what it was that he wanted. But the view was that he'd given um, given his thumbs up to this plan at so many points over the past few months 
that to now not do it was impossible. The left were in position. I think one person said to me, we'd be waiting our whole lives to do this. Um, and so uh, there's this lovely morsel of detail, which was that just before um, John Lansman proposed this motion, they had choreographed for Jeremy Corbyn to leave the room so that he could look down the barrel of a camera after the meeting and say, I wasn't in the room for this. I don't know exactly what happened. Um, and th th this is what took place. Somebody came and gave Corbyn a tap on the shoulder when he was supposed to leave with minutes to go before the debate in question. And on his way out, he actually whispered in the ear of John Landsman, the, the bearded uh, founder of Momentum. Um, he, he, and, and he actually thanked him for a, uh, a video that he recorded for the party to mark Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, a few weeks earlier. Um, John Landsman took this as benediction for Corbyn's plan. He himself wasn't sure whether Corbyn wanted it to go ahead. But when Corbyn uh, whispered this in his ear in the Politburo, his view was, well, Jeremy's clearly happy with me. He must oh, be yeah. fine for me to do this. And the rest is history. I feel like it's just another example, as you set out so clearly in your book, of the chaos that went on within not just the campaign, but the leadership. And of course, one of the huge issues that dogs the party and, and to an extent still does is anti-Semitism. How was that allowed to become such a big issue to start with? Well, it was a great question, which will occupy journalists and historians for, for many, many years. I mean, I think um, part of it is that... Um, Jeremy Corbyn had this self-perception of being um, a, a, a man who, whose lifelong mission was fighting for justice, fighting racism. In his own mind, you know, in his marrow is this anti-racism sentiment. And so to be told that he was a racist or that he had an anti-Semitism problem, I think it was such an assault on his sense of self that he found it so destabilizing, he actually just couldn't deal with it at all. Um, so, you know, there's a kind of a number of small events which gave rise to the anti-Semitism crisis. To begin with, there was this report into alleged anti-Semitism at the Labour Club in Oxford. There was a Ken Livingstone debacle um, in which he claimed that there was this uh, tight-knit link between Zionism and Nazism. I mean, there are all sorts of things that kind of led up to uh, it becoming a full-blown political crisis. And at various points along the line, um, people in Corbyn's team implored him to do something to show, I get it, I get why you're concerned about this, I understand why the Jewish community feels unsafe or uncertain about my leadership. Uh, they basically wanted Corbyn to channel the asset which they thought was his foremost, namely empathy, you know, the empathy he was able to show towards constituents, towards refugees. They wanted him to show that towards the Jewish community. But I think he felt so under attack but he found it very difficult and he never really managed to grapple with the issue. Gabriel, let me ask you, and, and briefly if you would, uh, what about Jeremy Corbyn's future? Does he have one in the party? Is this it? Is it the end? He's launched this project for peace and justice. I mean, where is he going? I, I, I don't... I mean, he's not going to leave Parliament. I think that is uh, pretty much impossible. Um, it's, you, you know, we talk about his own sense of self and um, his sense of self is firmly as uh, the Islington North MP and as a representative of that community. Um, but he's certainly gone from the mainstream of Labour politics. Um, I think the real kind of interesting question is uh, whether the Corbyn Easters are able to forge a future without Corbyn. And uh, on yeah. the evidence so far, uh, the conclusion is pretty mixed. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now let's focus on the path ahead. Keir Starmer, as leader, has a mountain to climb if he wants to win the next election. So how can he get there? That is the question we'll be asking now. Joining us to do that is Tom Hamilton. He's Associate Director at WPI Strategy and author of Punch and Duty Politics. An insider's guide to Prime Minister's questions, he's advised senior Labour politicians, the likes of Ed Miliband and Tom Watson as well. So he's had a fair amount of time in the halls of Westminster. Tom, good to have you. Um, I mean, we've seen this polling looking slightly better for Labour since Starmer took over. At some points, we've seen them pip a bit of a lead. How much comfort can Labour at this point really take from that? I think it's fair to say that they can take a certain amount of comfort, but they shouldn't be... Um, well, the polling doesn't indicate that they're on, on course to, to win by any means, but it certainly shows that they've recovered quite considerably. I think Labour's poll, poll rating has risen quite a lot more than the Tories' poll rating has fallen since the last election. The Tor- so Labour are doing quite well, but the Tories are doing pretty well as well, and that means that we're looking at sort of neck-and-neck polling. And I think it's also worth looking at the, the leadership ratings for the, the two leaders, and particularly Keir Starmer's ratings, which is, in, general, in general, Keir Starmer is looked upon quite favourably by the public. People don't necessarily know him very well, but they, they think he looks like a, a decent, competent leader who they could broadly trust, but they don't necessarily trust the wider Labour brand yet. And I think there's still a long way to go before Labour could get close to feeling confident about the next election. Well, yes, exactly. So, so then, what should, what are the what are the priorities they should be hitting? What what are the kind of themes that would make a difference to that? Well, in a way, right? People sort of over uh, overthink politics quite a lot, and I, I, and I was saying to someone the other day that in, in in a way, it would it would be to no disadvantage to Labour if it could find a way of spending the next two years doing literally nothing except saying we are not led by Jeremy Corbyn anymore, and get the public to sort of tune in beyond that in some time in sort of late 2022, uh, early 2023. Because at the moment, it doesn't necessarily matter very much what their poll ratings are. The question is, are they in a position to build for the next election? And what you've seen in the last sort of, well, it's less than a year, isn't it? About what, eight, eight months or so since, since Keir Starmer took over, is they focused very much on just projecting the idea that they're under new management, that the party's changed. What they haven't done is tried to roll out a whole swathe of new policies, a different vision for the country, and so on. I think you'll start to see a bit more of that in the next, in, in the next few months. But they don't want to over... They don't want to start pushing out a new manifesto for 2024 straight away, and nor, and, and nor should they. I think the other thing about that, that they're going to focus on or be aware of is the the COVID pandemic has done a couple of things. One is that um, it's created this massive national crisis that everyone acknowledges as a crisis and that nobody thinks is the government's fault, even if the government has handled bits of it badly. Um, It's clearly not the government's fault. And so 
the, the broad sort of constructive opposition that's, um, that, that Labour talked about early on and sort of carried on with, where they broadly support the restrictions that have happened, they broadly support the idea of providing significant financial re- resources uh, to support the economy, uh, and then they quibble around the edges and say maybe there should be more support, maybe certain restrictions should be, should, should be tighter. I think it's probably a sensible approach, but it does mean that they don't have massive dividing lines with the government at the moment. And then the mm. other thing that's imposed by that, of course, is that because the government is spending an enormous amount of money. People traditionally think that Labour would want to spend more money than the Tories, and there might be some truth in that. Until the Tories make some big economic calls, probably next year, maybe even later, about what the shape of the recovery and the sort of fiscal rebuilding process, if there is one, looks like, it's very difficult for Labour to work out um, what its stance to that, towards that should be. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask you about that, because historically, there's been this problem with Labour that people don't see them as being trustworthy with the economy, even now yeah. in the middle of a pandemic. And whatever you think about the way that the Conservatives have dealt with it, you've got Rishi Sunak's net approval ratings way up high, further than Starmer's. Um, yeah, I mean, you sort of outlined the challenge there. But how does Labour get over that issue that it's generally not trusted with the economy in a time like this, as you say, when there's so much spending going on, which is historically Labour's turf? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, there, there are two sides to that, aren't there? I mean, the, the fact that the Tories are spending a lot um, does tend to vindicate the, the wider argument that you might see as a sort of a, a left-off-centre argument that actually the government has an important role to play in supporting the economy, supporting individuals, supporting businesses at a time of crisis and perhaps more widely as well. There's an enormous amount of goodwill towards our public services and the NHS in general, which there always is, but perhaps even more so now, um, with, the, with the pandemic. And those are all things that sort of play towards um, Labour's traditional strengths and values that we we'll want to, uh, to, to build up. The, um, the, 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 the other issue is that because the government is spending an enormous amount of money, some of the arguments that the government has made over the last decade about, you know, fiscal responsibility, about the importance of uh, not running up a deficit, about the importance of um, austerity as a, a, as a response to those sorts of crises. Those, you know, whether or not you think that that undermines their longer-term message um, and implies that they were wrong for the last decade, it's certainly not an argument that they can make now, because whatever you think of the enormous amount of spending we've seen this year, um, I said earlier that the, the crisis isn't in its genesis the government's fault. It's certainly not Labour's fault either, and nobody thinks that it is. So the government thought that the right response was to spend a lot of money, and that is not necessarily a bad thing for Labour. The downside for them is that it's very hard for them to um, to, to argue for, for more spending than the government in a way that Labour has traditionally done. So it's going to be sort of outbid and outspent in a way that hasn't previously been the case. And so it needs to work out... What is its economic message? It's not just going to be more spending, but it's unlikely to be less spending either, because that's never where the Labour Party has been always comfortable being. So it's a slightly awkward position for it to be in. Tom, let's talk about something that uh, definitely yeah. is seen as Labour's fault. Um, it, it's something from the past, but we're not absolutely sure perhaps whether it's gone away. And I'm talking about anti-Semitism, of course. Yeah. It's been something that's hung around Labour's neck for several years. Uh, Clearly, Keir Starmer has attempted to sort it out um, with some high-profile uh, sackings uh, and obviously the action against yeah. Jeremy Corbyn himself. Is it nailed now? Is it done with? Oh, it's certainly not done with. Um, I think there's, there's two aspects to this. One is that, um, well, at least two aspects. One is that it really was a real problem that needed to be dealt with. And even for people who didn't think that, the um, 
VHRC report that came out a couple of months ago has it has legal force. The Labour Party has to act on it. It has to put new pressures in place, whether it likes it or not. Um, Keir Starmer and his team broadly do agree with the recommendations that have been made in any case. And then some of the internal argument is with people who, who don't like what the EHRC has said and is recommending. It doesn't matter what they think. It's legally binding. It's got to be done. Um, it's also, you know, in, in sort of crudely political terms, it's not entirely, um, it's not entirely bad news for Keir Starmer that, um, that he is having to deal with this problem that he wants to deal with and is able to sort of, you know, it's part of the symbol of his new leadership of the Labour Party is that he's not tolerating this in a way that the previous leadership arguably did and arguably didn't take seriously enough. So part of the symbol of Labour and junior management is that it's acting on this stuff. The downside of that is that they have to talk about it a lot and the media has to talk about it a lot because it's a real issue. And that sort of brings back to mind the fact that, you know, anti-Semitism has been quite a significant problem within the Labour Party in the last sort of five years or so in a way that it never really was significantly before that. So um, it's going to take quite a long time to sort out. This, it, it's the, the cause of quite a lot of internal tension within the party with people, particularly who, who are angry with the fact that uh, Jeremy Corbyn had the whip taken off him. I think that'll take quite a long time to resolve. But you know, in, in, the, in the widest sense, if you're going to have a, if you're going to have a fight about something, it's best to be on the right side rather than the wrong side. And it's to Keir Starmer's advantage that he's absolutely on the right side of this particular argument. Yeah, and, and as you mentioned, it has involved making these decisions whereby you inflame certain parts of the party, and I'm talking particularly about the Corbynist yeah. wing. H how much is that, do you think, noticed outside of Westminster? Is that an inside argument that just has to be had every time? Or is this something that voters are taking on board and they're going to see a continually split party? Almost everything is not noticed outside Westminster, frankly. Um, you know, or, or rather, inside and outside Westminster is slightly, un slightly misleading way of putting it because there are huge numbers of people who are very, very invested in the rows that go on the Labour Party who are not Westminster-based. But yeah. outside of the Labour Party and the sort of small group of people um, in national terms who are, who are sort of theatres all-consuming, they don't really notice. They might notice that the party's having an argument. They might notice that Jeremy Corbyn's been kicked out or that the party's got a new leader. But they're just not tuned in at the moment to the Labour parties. Well, but probably to party politics in general. They are quite rightly worried about their jobs, worried about the fact that we're all locked in our houses all day, worried about whether they're going to see their families for Christmas or not, looking at what, you know, when is the country going to, to, to reopen again and what's the economy going to look like after sure. it. Now, those all end up being party political questions, but they don't start as that. And that's, yeah. that's what people are thinking about at the moment. Tom, I mean, let me ask you a question briefly, if you would, which is uh, obviously of interest out of outside Westminster, just by definition, and that's Scotland. Yeah. Independent Scotland yeah. is a possibility now, in quite a real way. Um, would an independent Scotland rule out the chance of Labour ever returning to power in the UK? Well, you never say never, but it makes it a lot harder, um, because you know the, the path for Labour to win a majority, um, it's one of those things, it's it, it very hard to see how Labour can, can, can get back into power without winning seats in Scotland. There are then routes, in theory, to a minority government supported by the SNP, which causes its own electoral problems, but it's theoretically, you know, the, the numbers might work, but the numbers don't work if Scotland's gone. Um, all of these things are beyond Labour's control at the moment. Um, will there be a referendum or not? The, well, the government says there won't be, and it is up to them. So we'll have to see what happens in the next few years. But m more widely, Labour just has to rebuild its position in Scotland, where at the moment it's just the third party. And um, you know, isn't it, it just isn't in a position where it looks 
likely to do particularly well at Hollywood or particularly likely to do well um, at the next general election unless things change quite significantly. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.